You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, by your grace, you have opened your hand and satisfied the desires of all living creatures. You give us our food in due season and at the proper time and the proper way. You graciously bestow upon us the, the, the plenty and the blessings that we have enjoyed. We pray now that we would be fed and hunger after your word, that you would satisfy our desire for truth and wisdom, that you would grant that to us through your word. And as we study this passage, it is our desire that we may learn from you and by your spirit be empowered and illumined and enabled to understand the truth that is before us in the pages of Scripture. Help us to apply it rightly to our hearts that we may give to you hearts full of obedience and loving trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We're going to be finishing chapter 10 today, and then when we're done with chapter 10, we're going to take a brief break, as I mentioned in the the announcements this morning, for about five weeks to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, then we'll be returning back to the book of Ecclesiastes beginning in the book in the month of November. And so we have been looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and seeing that Solomon is commending wisdom to us as that which enables us to navigate life in a fallen world, in a world that is full of, of unexpected difficulties and circumstances that come our way, in a world that seems vain to us. Wisdom is the way that we walk through life and navigate life in a fallen world. And so Solomon is commending that, and he's done it in chapter 10 through a series of contrasts. And we saw him show us that how, how wisdom applies to our work. The fool benefits or the fool suffers in his work because of his folly. The wise man benefits in his work because of his wisdom. And then we saw him contrast the speech of the wise man with the speech of the fool. The speech of the wise, are, our words are gracious. The speech of the fool... Well, the speech of the fool ends up consuming him. And so there is the benefit of applying wisdom to our work and to our words. And now in another set of contrast, at the end of this chapter, we see that wisdom is applied to rulers and kings. And this is a familiar subject, as Solomon has time and again in Ecclesiastes, spoken as a king, come back to the subject of authority and rulers and princes. And here we see wisdom applied to princes and to rulers. So our passage this morning is verses 16 through verse 20. And we'll see in verses 16 and 17 that there is a contrasted, a contrast between two kingdoms. Two kingdoms and two kings are contrasted in verses 16 and 17. Verse 18 and 19 is wisdom applied to rulers, and then verse 20 is wisdom applied to the citizen. So beginning at verse 16, let's read this passage together, 16 through 20. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indulgence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. You see in verses 16 and 17 there's a contrast between these two kings and two kingdoms. Verses 18 and 19 is wisdom applied to the king, and verse 20 is wisdom applied to the citizen. And of course, there is this intriguing statement in verse 19. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry. And money is the answer to everything. Sounds quirky, doesn't it? 
Now, what, do we, what, what do we do with that passage? Well, today we're going to answer that question. What do we do with that verse? Money is the answer to everything. I think it's actually easier than you might at first think. And I think it can actually be a lot funner than at first we might think. But we'll see. So let's look, first of all, at the two kingdoms that are contrasted in verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17 are parallel. And I want you to notice this. Phrase by phrase, almost line by line, word for word almost, these two verses are, par- are parallel. Woe to you, O land. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose king is of nobility, whose princes feast in the morning, whose princes eat at the appropriate time. You notice the parallelism line by line through 16 and 17? Chapter or Verse 17 has a phrase at the very end of it that doesn't have a parallel in verse 16 for strength and not for drunkenness. That doesn't have anything in verse 16 that corresponds to it. And it seems to be added by Solomon as an explanation of what he means by eating or drinking at the appropriate or inappropriate time. So here's how we're going to handle verses 16 and 17. We're going to work our way through these two verses at the same time, taking phrase by phrase as their parallel and contrasting one phrase with another as we go back and forth between verse 16 and verse 17. So the first contrast in these two in, in this passage is between the word woe and the word blessed. Woe to you, O land. Blessed are you, O land. Verses 16 and 17. Now verse 16 describes a foolish king who rules over a kingdom and the lament that the people express as a result of the foolish king ruling in the land. And the people express this lament with the word woe as if the kingdom itself is under the judgment of God because of the folly of its ruler. Now contrast that with verse 17. Blessed are you, O land. The word blessed doesn't describe a lamentation as one who is under the judgment of God because of the folly of a ruler, but a land who is filled with blessing, and the word actually kind of has the idea of happiness. Happy are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. So the very first contrast that we have between these two kingdoms is really the expression or sentiment expressed about or by the people. Woe unto us if our king is a lad. Blessed are we if our king is of nobility. So that's the first contrast. The second contrast has to do with the leadership itself. What is the difference between a land that is blessed and a land that says, woe unto us? It all comes down to the leadership. And this is what Solomon describes in verse 16 and 17. In verse 16, whose king is a lad, and in verse 17, whose king is of nobility. So in one case, we have a wise person who is of, of noble birth, apparently, And in the second case with the foolish king, we have somebody, the person who brings woe to the land, is somebody who is a lad. Now the word lad there is kind of an interesting word. It's translated lad in the NASB. And if you are reading the NIV, you'll notice that it's translated servant. And it can be translated either way. It can refer to somebody who is young. It can refer to somebody who is under the authority of another individual, like an attendant or a servant. And it doesn't necessarily describe age. In this context, particularly in a political context, it is probably better to understand it as describing somebody's maturity. The word lad can refer to somebody who is young or a youth. It refers to somebody who is maybe under the authority of another individual, like a servant. But since it is used to describe a servant, it doesn't necessarily describe somebody's age because you can have older servants. And so the word can be used in a, in a variety of different ways. Here it is probably best understood to refer to the maturity of the leader himself. Notice the contrast with verse 17. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. And by nobility, Solomon is contrasting nobility with a lad. And the word nobility there literally means the son of nobles. And it describes somebody who is of the upper class. But what Solomon has in mind here is not the bloodline of an individual, but the behavior of an individual. Woe unto you, O land, whose king is like a child. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is like nobles. 
Now, what do you associate with children? Not wisdom, but folly. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. What do you associate with nobility? You associate in your mind the idea of noble behavior, excellence, dignity, somebody who is dignified, somebody who is fit for the office. Solomon's not describing bloodline, he's describing behavior. And so the contrast is between somebody who is childlike, a lad, somebody who is inexperienced, and somebody who has the experience that is fitted for the office. There's kind of a commentary on that word lad in 1 Kings chapter 3 because in 1 Kings 3, it, re- it records Solomon taking the throne from his father David. And here's what Solomon says. Remember this, the story here is of the, the Lord came to Solomon. And he said, ask me whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And here's Solomon's reply. You have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen a great people, who are too many to be numbered and counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? What is Solomon asking for? Wisdom. But he says... Lord, I am but a little child. He uses the exact same word that he uses in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 16, that's translated lad. Did Solomon mean that he was just a little child, a kid? What did Solomon mean? He was was at least 20 years old when he took over the throne for David, probably closer to 30 years old. So by all accounts, by all measures, he was a mature man with all of the duties and responsibilities of being an adult in the land of Israel. He is not describing his age. He is describing his maturity, his level of understanding, his lack of wisdom. That's what Solomon is describing in 1 Kings chapter 3. I think that's what he's describing in Ecclesiastes 10. Woe unto you, O land, whose king is like a child, whose king behaves like a child. What do we associate with children? Not maturity and dignity and reserve and steadfastness of character and patience and self-control. What do we associate with a child? Somebody who sits and makes mud pies in the mud and who flings mud at people. They are little, untrained, foolish savages. That's what children are. Untrained, foolish savages. So if you have a king who acts like a petulant child, woe unto that land. But if you have a king who understands the sobriety of his office and the sobriety of what it is that he is supposed to bring to the table in order to bless the people Blessed is that land whose king understands his duty and does it. In our culture, we tend to portray children as the ones who are all wise. Notice this, that come out of the, the, the storylines that come out of Hollywood. It's the children who run the household. They are the smart ones. They are the wise ones. They're the ones with all the answers who have to set mom and dad in order and teach them the ins and outs of life and what things are really like. And the, the, the parents are the bumbling, stumbling, foolish and nincompoops who have to be trained by their children and learn all of these life lessons from children. That's how our culture views or portrays children. And and that mindset is reflected even while we are told constantly in our culture and by our leadership that we should rearrange our ideas of human biology and sexuality because a child who is five years old plays with Barbie dolls and thinks that they're a boy or thinks that they are a girl. And we're supposed to rearrange how, how we perceive human biology and reality because of the wisdom on human biology that flows from the mouth of a five-year-old. That is wicked insanity. Children sit in the mud and play 
silly games. Children will always choose entertainment over exertion. If you ask a child, would you rather sit inside and play video games and watch cartoons or go outside with mom and dad in the yard and work, what will they choose? Invariably, 100% of the time, children will choose amusement over anything else because they, they are petulant, they are selfish, they think in those terms. And I'm not just trying to rip on children. Look, I was a children once. I was amongst the children, and I was a petulant, foolish, savage beast. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, and the parent's job is to use the rod of correction to drive that foolishness out. Children have to be trained to think like nobility, to act like nobility. Dignity, excellence, self-control, reservation, uh, temperance, those are the things that we associate with nobility. So, woe unto you, O land, whose king acts like a child behaves, thinks, reasons, and rules like a child would rule. A petulant individual, selfish, narcissistic, thinking of themselves only, little savage beast. That's not the type of person you want as a king. But blessed are you, O land, if you have a king who acts kingly, who behaves himself in such a way that, that dignifies the office. That's the, that's the next contrast. Now look at the third one, whose princes feast in the morning, Contrast in verse 17 with whose princes eat at the appropriate time. Now, the word princes here is just another word that is used to describe somebody who rules. This is the administration, the administration of the king. So we have kings and we have princes. And Solomon here is obviously talking about those who are in charge of ruling and reigning in the land. Not only the king, but also his administrators who do his bidding. Blessed are you, O land, whose princes eat at the appropriate time. And woe unto you if your princes feast in the morning. Now, the word eat in verse 17, the word feast in verse 16, they're the same word. They're translated differently in order to show us the emphasis that Solomon has in mind in verse 16 as he describes the foolish king. Solomon is not disparaging a hearty breakfast in verse 16. Woe to you if you eat in the morning. That's not what he's describing. He is describing instead a king who wakes up and he throws a, an, 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 a, an indulgent feast of such magnificent proportions with so much wine that is present for all of his nobles and all of his officials that all, everybody is drunk early in the morning. It's the idea of a feast, a self-indulgent feast where we satiate our base desires, we indulge the desires of our flesh, and we glut ourselves and get drunk. Woe unto that land, whose princes are feasting in the morning instead of at the appropriate time. But blessed is the land whose princes eat at the appropriate time and eat for the appropriate reasons. What good would come to a land? What good would come to a nation? If when the king got up and all of the administrators and every, all the princes and everybody associated with the administration, they were glutted, they attended a feast, and they were glutted and drunk by 8 a.m., what else would happen? What else would take place? See, he is describing here a complete reversal of priorities. There is an appropriate time and an appropriate place for feasting. It's not first thing in the morning. When is the appropriate time? Blessed is the land whose princes eat at the appropriate time. That's at night. After all of the work of the kingdom has been done, as the borders have been secured and the interests of the people have been secured and the king has done what he has done to serve his citizens, then is the appropriate time to sit down and enjoy a feast. That would be an appropriate time, but not first thing in the morning. Then that's the inappropriate time. So Solomon is describing here a self-indulgent king who wakes up in the morning and like a child, they have made their belly their god. They are slaves to their appetites 
And all they can think about is entertaining themselves, having a party, and ruling and enjoying it. And this is, the, this is the person who ascends to the highest position in the land, only to go on one vacation after another vacation, all funded by the taxpayer, on the golf course every single day, throwing a party at the White House for Beyonce and Rihanna and Justin Bieber and any other celebrity who wants to show up and entertain. It's just a self-indulgent, narcissistic party bent I'm just being entertained and enjoyed. Hard to imagine such a situation, but I'm sure in some cultures and societies, such a thing has taken place. That's what Solomon is describing. Somebody who pursues this only to satisfy their own lusts. Woe unto that land, because you will find that those lusts can never be satisfied. And such a land only ends up falling under the judgment of God, or it may be actually an indication that the land is under the judgment of God when such a king comes to power. So, there is an appropriate time for feasting. There's an appropriate time for enjoying those blessings. It's not in the morning. It is in the evening. And there's an appropriate purpose for eating and drinking. For strength, verse 17, and not for drunkenness. This is the one phrase that sort of describes this contrast between the the two attitudes. One is the self-indulgent. One is the reserved way. I not only eat at the appropriate time, but also for the appropriate purpose. A, a, A fool eats and drinks in order to glut themselves and satiate their desires, and to get drunk. That's the idea. Verse 17. A wise man sits down to eat and drink so that he may have the strength and the fortitude to do what he has been called to do. Because a wise king sits down and says, I will eat so that I may have the strength to serve my citizens. The foolish person sits there and thinks, the foolish king sits down to a meal and says, I will eat and indulge myself because the citizens have provided this for me, and after all, I deserve it. That's how a child thinks. A wise king eats for strength and not for drunkenness. Not to be inebriated, but only so that he may have the strength to do what it is that God has called him to do. So that's the first contrast there. That's the contrast of these two kingdoms. Matthew Henry says this, If, and he's speaking here of leaders, if they addict themselves to their pleasures and prefer the gratifications of the flesh before the dispatch of the public business, which they disfit themselves for by eating and drinking in the morning, When judges are epicures and do not eat to live, but live to eat, what good can a nation expect? And almost as if uh, Matthew Henry were describing America today, he writes this, and this was back in the 1800s. Matthew Henry says, If the king be a child and will take no care, if the princes eat in the morning and will take no pains, the affairs of the nation suffer loss, and its interests are prejudiced, its honor is sullied, its power is weakened, its borders are encroached upon, the course of justice is obstructed, the treasury is exhausted, and all its foundations are out of course, and all this through the slothfulness of self-seeking of those that should be the repairers of its breaches and the restorers of the paths to dwell in. See, this is what happens when folly is exalted to the highest positions in the land, as we talked about in verse 5, 6, and 7. When that happens, the entire nation suffers. Why? Because a little foolishness goes a long way. And when you make it king, woe unto you, O land. Instead, it is better to have a king who approaches his responsibilities with a level of sobriety that is appropriate to the office. There's an example of this very kind of proverb in thinking in Daniel chapter 5. I just read it this last week and it was, as I was preparing for this. It was my daily Bible reading that kind of took me through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5 is the story of Belshazzar who took over the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was probably on a journey and he handed the, the, the kingdom off to Belshazzar. 
And so Belshazzar decided to throw himself a big feast. And he brought in all of the golden vessels and the, uh, the, uh, the, the cups and the bowls from the temple of God, which was in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had see, uh, laid siege to and taken out of the temple when he had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And he brought those out and they began to drink wine out of that. And he had a feast for all of thousands of his nobles and all of his princes. They gathered at this feast and they all glutted themselves and got drunk. And then a hand appeared and wrote on the wall. Do you remember that? The handwriting on the wall? Uh, Mechel, no, Tekel, no. Mene, mene, tekel ufarsen. I don't do Uruguitic or whatever that language is very well. Mene, mene, tekel ufarsen. And Belshazzar didn't understand the writing on the wall, and he called Daniel in to interpret it. And Daniel said, Your kingdom has been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and it has been divided to the Medes of the Persians and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And then Daniel chapter 5 ends with these words. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And here's the backstory: Darius the Mede had laid siege to the city of Babylon, and Belshazzar said, let's throw a feast. So he threw a feast. And while they were creeping under the walls of the city, Belshazzar, in that, in that royal palace, with all of his nobles, was eating and drinking and praising the gods of Babylon. He should have been attending to the security of his nation and the security of his people. Instead, he did something inappropriate. He feasted at the wrong time and for entirely the wrong reasons and got executed. Woe unto you, O land, whose kings and princes feast at an inappropriate time, who act like children instead of like adults. But blessed is the land where those priorities are in order and where the king behaves himself in a way that is fitting for the office. That's the idea. So now look at wisdom applied in verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. I was surprised to find out that there are a number of commentators who think verse 18 and verse 19 have nothing to do with the idea of kings and rulers. I don't know how you could say that. I don't see how you can miss the fact that verse 18 and 19 have to do with rulers when verse 16 and 17 deal with rulers and kings and verse 20 deals with rulers and kings and sandwiched in between there, I believe in verse 18 and 19 is the wisdom appropriate to correct the foolish king and to give us a proper perspective. So verse 18 describes a, a sloth, a lazy individual. Through indolence the rafters sag and through slackness the house leaks. Now that is wisdom applied to the, the foolish or the lazy king in verse 16. See, the king that is in verse 16, the foolish king who eats at the inappropriate time, this is the lazy glutton who gets up every morning and all he can think about is just sitting back and being entertained and enjoying the powers of his office while he has them. He's not interested in doing the hard work of being a good king. Instead, he is just, he's just sitting back and soaking it all in. He rests way too much. And so verse 18 is the correction for verse 16. That's a lazy king. And so Solomon in verse 18 applies wisdom to the lazy king, and here is the proverb. Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. And the picture is of a fool who, standing in his house, does nothing while everything deteriorates around him. And eventually, the, because of indolence through his laziness, because he won't get up and fix anything, eventually the rafters start to sag and the roof starts to leak, and everything comes crushing down in upon him and crumbling down in upon him. And he stands there one day, surrounded by all of the rubble, and says to him, Self, what happened? When all along he has been neglecting his duties in favor of doing something else, namely resting, being lazy. He doesn't want to get up and do anything. Last fall, as I was closing up the vents around the foundation of my house, I crawled under my deck and I noticed that where my deck was attached to the wall of my house, the, the wood was wet and really soft. Like if I wanted to, I could push my hand all the way through that into the crawl space. So it was way too late in the year to do anything about it last year, so this spring I tore off all the old deck and had to replace all of the rib joists along there. And uh, 
we've lived in that house for 17 years, the day-to-day change has been almost imperceptible. Now, I could have just gone in and said, well, hey, more football, eat, drink, and be merry, and just enjoy everything and not worry about it. i got to go to the beach, and i got to do this. and I, can, I mean, after all, I can still walk out on the deck, right? I can still open the slider to get out on the deck. The wall seems fine. The drywall hasn't cracked. Everything is good. I could have neglected that, but I knew that if I did neglect that, eventually my slider would fall into my, sub, my sub, subspace and the, the rot would spread all the way through my floor and up the wall and the drywall would crack and pretty soon I'm going to have to rebuild an entire kitchen, which my wife probably would have liked. But instead of spending all of that money, I instead jumped right on it and had to deal with it. Now, if I had been indolent and slack, what would have happened? Eventually everything would have come crushing down. And so it is, and so it is with laziness and indolence. Laziness in all of its forms, spiritual, mental, physical laziness in all of its forms is destructive. It destroys churches. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys relationships. It destroys business enterprises. It destroys everything. It will destroy your soul. The lazy individual doesn't even realize that the sin that they love and cherish and keep secret to themselves is like dry rot quietly eating away at the soul. And pretty soon they wake up and they are surrounded by a spiritual wasteland and all the rubble that their indolence has caused around them, and they're wondering what has happened. And all the time it is because they have been too lazy to pursue holiness, and to pursue righteousness, and to obey Scripture, and to do the things that are worth doing, and worth doing well, spiritually speaking. And so laziness must be mortified, always and ever, always. It is a sin that we have to identify at the beginning. Spiritual laziness, spiritual apathy, these things eat away at our soul, just like they eat away, just like drywall eats, eats away at a, a wall. Through indolence, the laughter sag, uh, rafters sag. Through laziness, the roof will eventually leak. When we are lazy, everything starts to crumble around us. We have to mortify that sin of laziness and do the work that God has called us to do. That's the correction for verse 16. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. What does that verse mean? I'll tell you what it does not mean. First, before I tell you what it could mean, I'll tell you what it does not mean because it's important that we rule something out. Solomon is not suggesting that money is the solution to all of life's problems. That's not what he's saying. How do I know that that's not what Solomon is saying? Because first, it would contradict everything else he said in Ecclesiastes about money, for one. Back in chapter 2, he described all of the money and wealth that he had, and how did he describe it? Vanity. It's emptiness. It's chasing after the wind. There's nothing substantial to it. It's just, it's gone in an instant. In chapter 5, he said, those who love money will never be satisfied with money, and those who desire things will never be satisfied with those things. No matter how much those things increase, you'll never be satisfied by them. So it obviously cannot be the answer to everything, since it doesn't even answer the the problem of our own dissatisfaction. Uh, Further, Solomon himself, even in his cynical state, would have known that money is not the solution to everything, because if it were, Solomon would have had how many problems? Zero At the time, he was one of, if not the richest man on the planet. He had everything. He had an entire kingdom. Silver was nothing in the days of Solomon because it was so plentiful. This was a man surrounded by wealth. If money were the answer to everything, Solomon would have had zero problems. In fact, is not the book of Ecclesiastes full of problems that money cannot solve? Isn't that the case? Think through the problems in the book of Ecclesiastes. How many of them can money solve? None. And in some of those cases, money makes the problem worse. That's what we've learned. So Solomon is not saying that money is the solution to all of life's problems. He is saying one of two things. 
Which of these two things? It depends on what day of the week you ask me as to which of these. I think either one of these are a possibility. Before I give them to you, I want you to see an ob- look at an observation. Verse 19 mentions three things. It mentions bread or a meal, sometimes translated bread. It makes mentions wine as making us merry, and it mentions money. Uh, bread, wine, and money. Now, two of those three things Solomon has already alluded to or mentioned explicitly in verses 16 and 17. Uh, talking about the feast. The feast would include both the food, the bread, and the wine, <clears throat> and could be referring to, their, to the meal that Solomon is mentioning in verse 19. So two of those three things are mentioned already in the passage. One of them, money, is what is necessary in order to provide both the bread and the wine. With that in mind, here are the two possibilities of what Solomon could be saying. First, Solomon might be describing, might be describing here an actual biblical and reasoned approach to these three items in contrast to the foolish king of verse 16. Meaning this, let me put it in other words for you. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, not to become gluttons, but to enjoy. See the correction? Verse 16, the king prepares the feast so that he may overindulge himself and get drunk. But men, wise men, prepare a meal for enjoyment. Um, And this is in keeping with what we have seen elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes, as Solomon has described, the, the blessing of enjoyment that God gives to people to whom he gives the things to enjoy, right? He, we have seen Solomon commend to us the simple enjoyment of life's pressures. Bread, eating your bread, drinking the wine, doing so with gladness, enjoying the work of your hands, living and enjoying life with your wife of your youth and your children. So this could be just another one of those kinds of passages. Men prepare, the proper thing is to prepare a meal for enjoyment, not to be a glutton, not to feast at the improper time, but to enjoy the meal in its proper way and in its proper context, as Solomon has already described. Likewise with wine. Wine is a symbol of God's blessing. It was a rich blessing that it was afforded to people when God had poured out grace upon the nation, and wine could be something that was used to make merry, to enjoy at a celebration. So that is one of those blessings that God has provided as well in Scripture. It's called a blessing. It is portrayed as a blessing. And so eating and drinking for indulgence and drunkenness would be the abuse of those blessings. Eating a meal for enjoyment and allowing the wine to make your life merry and to be a compliment to your wife, that would be the use of those blessings. So eating a meal for enjoyment is contrary to the indulgence of verse 16. And so Solomon here is just describing what it means to to use these things in their proper way instead of their improper way. But what about the phrase, money is the answer to everything? Well, all Solomon would be saying by that is that in order to eat and enjoy these things, eat and drink and enjoy these things, money is necessary for that. Money answers those things. And this is contrary to how wisdom literature per, uh, portrays a fool in many contexts. Or the, the fool or the lazy individual didn't have money because the lazy person doesn't go out and harvest the wheat to make the bread to enjoy the meal. He doesn't go out and harvest the grapes to make the wine to enjoy that blessing. Instead, he sits around while the, the wheat goes to seed and the, the grapes rot on the vine and then harvest comes and he has nothing and he ends up starving and he has to go without. That's how Scripture portrays the sluggard, the lazy individual. But the wise man will go out and he will do the work that is necessary to have those things and to enjoy those blessings and have the money necessary to buy those things. So the first possibility is that Solomon is simply describing a reasoned or balanced or biblical view of these things. Meals are for enjoyment. Wine does make life merry. Not the abuse of them. That's not what we're talking about. But the enjoyment of them. And money is necessary to enjoy those blessings. Pretty straightforward. There is a second way of understanding verse 19. And that is that in verse 19, Solomon is putting words to the foolish king that is in verse 16. In other words, this is how the foolish king thinks. This is the song of the foolish king. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry, happy. 
and money is the answer to everything. That's what a foolish king thinks. So the foolish king, rather than looking at the, the, the bread that is prepared in order to give him enjoyment and do his work and strengthen him for the task, rather than seeing wine as the blessing that it is to be used and not abused and making life merry, he overindulges these things. And so the king thinks the only reason to have a meal is so that you can enjoy it. And the more you eat, the more you will enjoy it. And the more you drink, the happier you are. And, and aren't we supposed to be happy? Doesn't God want us happy? Isn't the right to be happy somewhere in the Constitution? Or I read it, one of those things suppresses the word happiness. So obviously everybody should be happy and God wants us all to be happy, right? Isn't that the highest aim of all of humanity is to be happy? And wine makes us happy, so go get her. Right? That's, that's, how a, that's how a fool thinks. And does not a foolish king think money is the answer to everything? It's exactly how foolish leaders think. Money answers everything. Is Detroit falling apart? What does it need? Well, more money, obviously. Is the public school system failing? What does it need? More money, obviously. What stands between you and perfect health? More money, obviously. See, a foolish king never sees a single problem that does not have the answer, money. Take from that person and spend money on it. See, in the eyes and the thinking of a foolish king, there is no problem, there is no issue, there is no roadblock between us and a blissful utopia that money cannot solve. If we just had more money, we could throw money at it and the problem would go away. That is how foolish kings think. That is how foolish princes think. That is how foolish citizens think. Because money is not the answer to everything. So, is Solomon describing a reasoned approach to these things? Or is Solomon putting words in the mouth of a foolish king? You will find good people on both sides that will take both of those positions. And depending on what day... Yesterday, I thought it was the first. Today, I think it's the second. Tomorrow, I don't know what I will think about the passage. But either way, there are two very good answers to that. Solomon is certainly not saying and suggesting that money is the answer to all of life's problems. Now, verse 20. So in, in verses 16 and 17, two kingdoms contrasted. Verses 18 and 19, wisdom applied to the rulers. In verse 18, he is correcting them with wisdom. In verse 19, he's probably mocking them by putting words to exactly how it is that they think and expressing it so that we can hold it in contempt. I guess that's how I think today. Verse 20, verse 20 is wisdom applied to the citizen. Look at verse 20. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For the bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. The NASB translates, in your bedchamber do not curse a king. That's a, that's a tragic translation. Uh, the ESV has it better. It's in your thoughts or in your thinking. The word refers to thoughts and knowledge. Why the NASB translated it bedchamber? I, I know the answer to that. I'm, it's not at all interesting or I would drop it on you, but it is an unfortunate translation. It's probably better, it is better translated in your thoughts or in, the, in your knowledge in the recesses of your mind and the, the hidden expression of your mind do not curse the king and in your sleeping room do not curse the rich man. And Solomon's concern here is that it might be overheard, which is why he talks about the bird of the heavens. What does it mean to curse? The word curse here means to hold in derision, to treat as a curse or to hold in a state of hateful contempt in your heart. And the idea here is that in our hearts we ought not to curse, to hold in contempt with hatred those who, that, the one who is the king. Now this passage is much easier to obey when the king is somebody that we like or that we enjoy or that agrees with us politically. It is, right? If however you guys might think, but if Ronald Reagan were president today, it would be very easy for me to obey this verse. No other president in my lifetime have I ever seen, known about, or heard about, or imagined that it would have been easy to obey this verse. Right? It's very difficult to obey this when the king is somebody who is foolish, like in verse 16, 
who behaves like a petulant child, who is narcissistic and thinks that everything should be used for his own self-aggrandizement. Very difficult to obey this. We are not to hold in contempt, to view or treat or speak of as accursed the king. No matter how foolish he is. It's just biblical wisdom. This does not mean that we cannot have a political opinion, that we cannot express it. It doesn't mean that we cannot speak truth in the public arena, that we cannot and the the church ought to be the voice of conscience for a nation, that we ought to stand up and proclaim, no, this is right and this is wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't call out abuses of power or wrong-headed thinking that is done by government officials. It doesn't mean any of that. John the Baptist lost his life for, for calling out a ruling official. They put him into prison for that. So there's an appropriate way in which we do that. But we always have to remember that when we are speaking of and to uh, people who are in positions of power, those who rule over us, those in authority, that they are not the enemy, they are the mission field. As much as it might gall me what some people believe, I always have to remind myself they're the mission field, not the enemy. If I could sit down right here with Hillary Clinton and I were in my right mind, I would want to give to her the gospel. That's all I would want to do. All the political stuff aside, what she needs is the gospel. What Donald Trump needs is the gospel. What Barack Obama needs is the gospel. All of them need the gospel. They are the mission field. So we don't, as much as I might hate the wickedness that they stand for, and as much as I might despise the policies that they promote, the harm that is done by any and all of the foolish, petulant leaders that rule our nation, as much as I might despise those things, I always have to keep in mind, I should not curse them, because they are my mission field. Those are the people I want to reach. They're not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. The enemy is Satan. He is the enemy. And and his way of thinking and those ideologies that we must destroy, that's the enemy. Those other people, those are the mission field. Those are lost, hopeless, helpless, blind individuals who deserve our pity and our compassion and and should be reached with the gospel. Our prayer ought to be that somebody would bring them the gospel. So we don't hold them in our hearts as accursed. And we certainly need to not speak those accursed things because Solomon's concern is that a winged creature, a bird of the heavens, will carry the sound and the winged creature will make the matter known. They might overhear it. They might, through some unexpected source, some some way of getting through the grapevine, it might get to the king. And as Solomon said in chapter 8, the king has the authority to do whatever he wants. The king can execute you for any reason or no reason. He had that power and authority in that day. And so... This is how wisdom protects us. It keeps us from saying something about an individual that may cost us. It might be the king who has the power to kill us or a rich man who has the power and ability and the means to do us harm. And wisdom would protect us if we guard our mouths. Wisdom helps us to guard our mouths. And that phrase, the winged creature, the bird of the heavens will carry the sound, the winged creature will make the matter known, that's kind of a colloquialism, a figure of speech. We have something similar that we say today. When we talk about something that made it through the grapevine, what do we say? A little birdie told me. Have you young kids heard that? May I say that? A little birdie told me? Yeah, okay. I'm glad to hear it hasn't fallen out of disfavor. I don't think I've ever used it with, with my kids, but my grandmothers used to use that with me all the time. It was always in connection with something that I was doing that needed correction. A little birdie told me that you were in the garden picking so-and-so. A little birdie told me you were eating apples off my apple. A little birdie told me you had cookies out of the cookie jar today. Those little birdies never told him anything good about me. Nothing ever. <laughs> I could, I could shovel snow off the porch. I could help grandpa feed the cows. I could shovel manure out of the trough. I, did, I, could, I could help. I could save somebody's life. I could have done brain surgery on a poor homeless man, and that little birdie would have never reported it to grandma. But everything that I did that needed correction, those little birdies were talking their fool heads off all the time, and grandma knew about it, both of my grandmas. The birds were constantly talking to them. So that's the idea. You don't say something that is going to end up coming back around to the king, and he's going to kill you. 
So wisdom applied to the king, what does it mean? For the king, it means you do the business that God has called you to do in the position that he has put you with sobriety and a, an attitude and a reverence for the office and the task that he has given to you. And you do so you do so soberly in order that the land may be blessed and may be happy. What does wisdom applied to the citizen mean? It means that we conduct ourselves appropriately. It means that we watch our hearts, we guard our minds, and that we behave as citizens who are under the authority of those who are over us. And we must behave in that appropriate and sober-minded way as well. So that is the end of chapter 10, and next week we are going to be in something different. Uh, here is your challenge for the next It'll be six weeks. Since we're going to leave Ecclesiastes, we'll be back at the beginning of in November. Here's your job. Don't forget anything that we have already talked about. So I won't have to start at the beginning of Ecclesiastes and go through all of this again just to remind us of what we've covered. So remember where it is that we left off. Don't forget anything that I've said about Ecclesiastes, and we'll pick it up again in six weeks. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, we are grateful for the wisdom that you provide in your word. You have equipped us in all things pertaining to life and godliness. We just can rejoice that you have given us your word to trust in and you have given us a kingdom to look forward to. As we talk about kings and rulers and those in authority over us, we, there's part of our hearts that long for that day when Christ will come and establish his kingdom and we will rule with him and reign with him and it will be a perfect kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end, a kingdom of righteousness and truth, of perfect beauty and holiness. And we long for that. There is something in the hearts of your people that longs for that and rightly so. We pray that you would help us to be satisfied in this world with that hope that we have until it is made reality for us. And in the meantime, we pray that as we are surrounded by the foolishness of the world around us, foolish ways of thinking and conducting themselves and foolish behavior, foolish entertainment, folly everywhere, that you would help us to be wise according to your word and to think rightly about who you are and what you have given to us and rightly about the world around us. We pray that you would help us to see the world as our mission field, not our enemy, and to reach out to them with the gospel for the glory of Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.